Okay, Exodus 28, we've got the clothing of the high priest here. Um, verse 3, <clears throat> You shall speak to all who are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to sanctify him. Now, this is a, a theme that you, you get several times in the uh, record of the construction of the tabernacle, that the wise-hearted were given wisdom. The wise were made wise. Um, and I think what it's saying is that God was there to confirm these people in maybe some natural ability that they had, as um, it seems that uh, Bezalel and, and people like that had some natural ability that was confirmed by God, that their spirit was confirmed by his spirit. Now this is one of many references, and I, I would argue that you've got them on almost every page of the Bible, where God is prepared to do something directly on the human heart. And as soon as you start talking then about the heart, you're talking about the spirit. And God puts, as it were, his spirit to work with the spirit of, of human beings. When we start talking about the activity of the Holy Spirit, there, there is in our community a sort of red light start coming on and uh, there's a sense of careful, careful. And I wonder why that is. I don't think it's simply because we recognize that the uh, extremes of Pentecostalism, you know, rabbits out of hats and all this kind of thing, is, uh, is not so. I suspect it's an inbuilt uh, concern that we have that we might uh, just be moving away from the idea that it really is a man facing off against God over a table upon which there is a Bible, and we are to understand that book and to try to beat our, our mind into submission to his word, and uh, maybe we'll get saved in the end. That is act actually a very attractive idea, because to posit that actually God works on the human spirit, if we let him, that he is prepared to take over our heart, our spirit, we start to lose control and we all want to kind of be in control. And who wants to feel that I am a bit out of control now? So I, I think we simply have to face up to the fact that God is eager and willing to work upon human hearts. And it's not that these guys read the Bible and thereby and therefore became wise. Uh, they had some inclination towards serving God and they had some ability in this particular area, and God gave them this spirit of wisdom, which is a phrase, incidentally, that uh, crops up in the New Testament as something that God is willing to give us. It's, of course, not a carte blanche, it's not uh, open check. It is specifically, as we know, the Holy Spirit. is God's mind, God's power, God's mind for specific ends. And the specific end was clearly the building up of the tabernacle, the building up in our context of God's people. So if that is your desire to work for God, not for yourself, uh, but for God and for others in the house of God, then he will provide and he will confirm you in what you want to do. And this is a, an amazing promise. And this is really, I think, what the, the whole talk about the gift of the Spirit the gift of the new mind, the holy mind, the Holy Spirit, uh, is which we, we meet in the New Testament. Well, <clears throat> we, we go on here with all the details, and for example, verse 5 and 6 talks about gold, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen. 
And it is uh, normal, I suppose, amongst all expositors to look at these different colours and say, well, gold represents faith and fine linen represents righteousness and so forth. Uh, because there is a verse in the Bible in Revelation that talks about the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. But I am a bit unhappy about that because just taking the colours in verse 5, if you look at every Bible reference to gold or every Bible reference to linen or purple or blue or scarlet, you'll find different verses use them in different ways. So to say in a global sense, gold equals faith, linen equals righteousness, I'm not sure about that. Well, it's simply not the case, because the Bible does not always use the terms in that way. It looks very neat in the margin of your Bible to underline, for example, the word gold here in verse 5 and write faith, and to underline the word linen and write righteousness and, and so forth. Uh, but I just don't see the New Testament, when it interprets the Old Testament, I, I don't see the New Testament using the Old Testament in that uh, very sort of highly defined way, that this equals that. It's not the style of the New Testament writers, even though, I might add, it was and is the style of the rabbinic uh, expositors, out of whom, as it were, certainly the Apostle Paul, uh, according to the flesh, as it were, uh, came. I know he was writing under inspiration. And so I just think it's uh, interesting that he doesn't write in that way. And so why then these different metals, uh, different colours, etc.? And if you keep asking the question, like, why this? Why purple? And you might give a some explanation why linen are because it represents righteousness but then if you ask the question a stage further back and why linen what why white why gold in almost sort of childlike way um you don't come to very good answers and i would like to suggest that all the commands about making the tabernacle and the various garments that you got here god was in a sense uh, limited by what Israel had in their pockets, as it were. Because they'd come out of Egypt, they were in the wilderness, where there was no gold, scarlet, fine linen, purple, blue uh, material just lying around for them to pick up and start using. They had with them what they had when they came out of Egypt, and what they had borrowed from the Egyptians, stolen more like from the Egyptians. That's what they had. And so God tells them, well, that's what you got, that's what I will use. It's rather like the repeated emphasis upon the use of shittim wood, or acacia. Um, really, the, the, uh, the, the bush, and that's what it is, the bush that is referred to as shittim wood, is really just a, a bush, and that, that's what they had in the, in the desert. So you could argue that God, in a sense, had no option but to tell them to, to build the ark and the different posts, etc., the wooden work of shittim wood, even though... This is absolutely not the right kind of wood to use for that kind of work. It's very brittle, thin, uh, very hard to get any decent length of it, uh, very hard to join what lengths you have together uh, to make a nice box such as required for, for the ark, etc. But it was what they had. That, I think, is the lesson that I would prefer to take out of this rather than seeking to... Uh, 
insist that, well, the gold represents this, and that's why God told him to use it, and the scarlet represents that, because uh, that's that was all in God's plan sort of thing. I'm not saying that you, you can't interpret the Bible like that. I'm simply saying that in terms of logical consistency, that runs into problems, because these colors tend to be associated with different things in different parts of the Bible, and because, as I said, the New Testament does not seem to interpret the Old Testament in that way. So the lesson, I think, is that God sees what we have and is so eager to run with us that he says, this is what I want you to make. I want you to use what you've got, and I will work that in to my program with you. So then we, we come on there, verse uh, 12, these uh, precious stones. Uh, he was to have two, shoulder, two stones on the shoulder, and those stones of memorial were to have the, the names of the tribes engraven on them. And then you also have the same uh, idea with the stones in the breastplate of judgment. Uh, verse 29, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel on the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place for a memorial before Yahweh continually. Now, here I think, yes, we can understand that clearly the high priest is set up as typical of the Lord Jesus. Hebrews makes a lot of use of this similarity, and we are therefore, I think, quite justified in seeing all this as pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. And who are the names of the children of Israel? Well, it is us, surely. I mean, Revelation 2.17 uh, we're told that the believers are likened to a stone with a unique name written on it. So we have a name, and of course a name in Hebrew thought was not so much just a, an identifier, but a name had meaning. It was a descriptor of the, the character and the, the history, the biography of the person. This is why the name of Yahweh is not simply Yahweh, or, or any word of Jehovah or whatever, however you want to pronounce it, that, that's a, just a misplaced um, obsession, it seems to me, with, with worrying about how it should be pronounced. The essence of the name is who God is and was and has been and shall be. It is his uh, biography, if you like. It is his character stamp over history. And so, therefore, our names, who we essentially are, are carried on the shoulder of the high priest and on the breastplate of judgment on his heart. That's maybe not difficult to, to see where this is leading, because the Lord Jesus carried the cross. What, what was on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus, it was the cross, which we're here to remember. And in that sense, the cross was us. He carried our sins, he carried us. Um, and, of course, it was that which was so heavy for him. Uh, and it was that which was the method and reason of his, of his death. And yet he also had the names of each of us, as it were, on his heart. Now, it says in 29 that the names are in the breastplate of judgment. Why is it called the breastplate of judgment? I think it's because, in verse 30 in the breastplate of judgment were the Urim and the Thummim. And they were on Aaron's heart. The later references to Urim and Thummim seem to imply that these were two stones 
that gave a kind of a binary decision that when there was a question, should I do this or should I do that? They flashed out um, a, a message, yes, do that or no, do not do that. And in all the examples where they're used, and there's not that many of them, all the questions that were asked of the Urim and Thummim were always capable of a, a binary uh, resolution. That is, that, that there was, um, it was one out of two ways. So I think then that this speaks of God's judgment, that ultimately our destiny is to the right or to the left, that there is no purgatory, there is no middle road where, okay, you're not a terribly bad sinner, uh, but you're also, uh, you're also not so squeaky clean righteous either. And yeah, we'd all love that to be true. That's why the idea of purgatory is very attractive. Um, you know, yeah, put me there for a bit. That would sort of be uh, about right for me. I am a sinner, but I'm not, you know, I'm not too bad. And I want to have uh, hope for eternity ultimately. And so that is not so. And the more we realize this, that the ultimate outcome of life, of existence, of our destiny, is one way or the other, and that the fact that it is to be to the right, that it is to be uh, for him and to his kingdom, that that is assured for us in the death of Christ for us, uh, and that there is no other way, uh, apart from condemnation, uh, which we have been saved from if we, if we abide in Christ, then, you know, this is something that really uh, pulls us up short in the midst of all our decisions about what should I do with this or that, or careers, or decisions about financial matters, and all these kind of things that, that we, we think about, that ultimately the ultimate decisions, I would say in life, come down to one way or the other, for God or not, uh, for the kingdom or not for the kingdom, for life or for death. Just as, as we finally come to the end uh, of our mortal existence and stand before the uh, judgment throne in the last day, uh, it will be the same there, that there will be no other exit apart from to the right or to the left. And yet the Lord Jesus, who of course is the final judge and who rightly has that breastplate of judgment uh, with the Urim and Thummim, as it were, what is written there in beautiful stones, precious stones, is written our names, <clears throat> that he has us in his heart before God. I think what this means is that it is wrong to think of Jesus as simply a translator, translating from one language to another. You know, you say one word in your language, the translator says another word. Dobrodien, good day. Gagdila, how are you? You know, little translation from uh, Russian into English. Uh, it, that's not how Jesus is mediating for us. That you say one word and he, he's, he sort of puts it in God's kind of way. Um, we are in his heart. And in Romans 8, I think this is why it's saying we know not uh, how to pray for uh, as we should. Um, but Jesus makes intercession for us. And the intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered is a matter of the heart. Uh, and it is not a case of translating from one language to another, uh, in a, even in a rather disinterested manner, and leaving it up to God. This is him on his own agenda, on his own agenda, interceding for us to God. <clears throat> Thinking, well, I see this problem that you've got, and trying to 
to God or talking to God, even groaning to God for us. It's like he says to Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter, that your strength fail not. I can see there's coming up on the horizon a big test for you. And he sees the same with us if he was like that in his mortal life. How much more in this life? And all this was foreseen, I think, in the way that these very precious stones were on his heart. The preciousness of the stones, I think, was to simply uh, show how valuable we are to, to God and to the Lord Jesus. And of course, as he came into the presence of God, it would seem that the glory of God, I mean as the, uh, the high priest came into the uh, most holy place with, with this uh, breastplate on, it would seem that the glory of God, what the Jews call the Shekinah glory, uh, would have shone there. And of course, it would have been refracted in different ways by each of those valuable precious stones. In the same way as we each reflect and refract the, the light of God's glory in different ways. And this would have made, I suspect, a, a kind of a rainbow uh, visual uh, effect over the uh, breastplate of judgment. So there, over the breastplate of judgment, in the very presence of God, there was the rainbow, which is the assurance that God will not condemn again. There was the assurance of the covenant relationship that in our terms we have if we are baptized into the Lord Jesus. And so overarching the Urim and the Thummim, the ultimate reality that we exit this uh, world and, and uh, our whole existence to the right or to the left, to the kingdom or not to the kingdom, uh, overarching all that is this glorious rainbow of God's glory and of God's promise not to condemn. And over that and within that, there are these precious stones that represent you and me with your name and my name written there on his heart. That really we are all he has. That we are his and we are in his heart, as it were, to live and die with him. We can get the impression that people who are in very great uh, positions of power are somehow not uh, open to all our human uh, sort of emotions and things like that. You can, it's why if you um, get a photograph of uh, the Prime Minister or the President like picking his nose or sneezing or um, walking into a public toilet or something like that, it's sort of, it's all over the internet and it's in the newspapers because it's interesting. Why is it interesting? If you or I walk into, the, into a, a, a public toilet or if you and I, I pick our nose, I know we're not supposed to, but you know, we all do that kind of thing. Uh, well, so what? I hope you wouldn't go and put it on the internet if it was me, and I certainly wouldn't if it was you. But if it's the president or the prime minister, well, you don't do that. If you sneeze and you're caught sneezing, oh, great, you know, it's on YouTube the next minute that uh, I know some guy's got a close-up uh, uh, video of the Queen of England or the, uh, the president of America uh, sneezing. It's interesting. Why is it interesting? Because we assume that way up there in that uh, great position of power they've got, you're sort of less than human. You, you more than human, I suppose. Sort of, you don't have those kind of feelings and uh, stuff. And this has been enshrined, I suppose, in the Greek philosophical view of God, that uh, he is the unmoved mover, uh, uh, as, uh, as it is said, and that he's not moved by anything much. And this is not the case at all. 
he is and the Lord Jesus really has these thoughts and, and feelings and emotions for us and it's not as if well you know he's uh, he's set it all up for us and yes he died on the cross and it's up to us if we respond and he'll open the books of the day of judgment and see how we got on and yep yeah, he'll be very pleased to see us kind of thing but you know he's pretty busy running the cosmos um, we are in his heart absolutely to, to live and die with him this really is, is a, a huge a huge comfort now time and again it's said in, in 41 for example that you are to sanctify Aaron and his sons they are to be sanctified and uh, you've got this uh, quite a few times in all the accounts of Aaron's consecration his sanctification so he's sanctified so that he can serve and this is a theme this theme of sanctification which runs through the Lord's uh, prayer in John 17 where facing his death and realizing what he's going to achieve he says a couple of times John 17 17 19 that he is dying in order to sanctify us and so the whole work of the high priest going into the most holy place to get forgiveness for the people um, this and this is wonder of wonders really this is not just talking about the Lord Jesus this is talking about us as well because if we are in him all that is true of him becomes true of us and so we also have boldness the writer to the Hebrews says to enter into the holy place into heaven itself and why did the high priest go in there it was to sanctify the people and we are then to do the same now in verse 35 Aaron was to have these uh, bells and on the hem of his robe so that his sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Yahweh and when he comes out so that he will not die so Kyrgyz of that is quoted 1 Corinthians 9.16 Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Uh, the, the idea is may I, um, I will die if I don't preach the gospel. Uh, so the idea is here so that he doesn't die he has to have the, the bell ringing all the time. And if the bell didn't ring then it was as if he died. And I think you can see the ringing of the bell as really a uh, an idea then of spreading of the gospel and that is justified by Psalm 19 verse 3 which talks about uh, the sound being heard of the gospel when it says 35 his sound shall be heard quoted Psalm 19 verse 3 or certainly alluded to there um, that there is nowhere under heaven where our sound is not heard and that's quoted in the New Testament about the preaching of the gospel worldwide so my point is that a number of these descriptions of the uh, the work of the high priest at this time are picked up in the New Testament and carried through in various ways of allusion to apply to us now this would have been so hard for uh, Jewish people in the first century to, to grasp just as it is for us today really that I really am to do God's work the work of the Lord Jesus that we are not spectators at a show that we are not sitting back 
but that we are actually called to be in Christ and to totally devote ourselves to the work of saving men and women.